1: Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we infuse weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolf. On this edition, we'll feature the power of beer and blurry photographs. But first up, here's the news with Emily Fern.
0: acid, a drop in the pH of our oceans, threatens snail defences. A predicted worldwide fall in ocean alkalinity could have subtle effects on a small shoreline snail, potentially shutting down one of its best defences against crab predators. As human activity continues to add carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, increasing amounts of greenhouse gas dissolve in the oceans, pushing seawater towards acidity. The common periwinkle, Litterina littorea normally grows a thicker shell when living amongst predators, says Simon Rundle of the University of Plymouth in England. In lab tests, he and his Plymouth colleagues found that a big increase in seawater acidity had little effect on periwinkle shells, except when a predatory crab was lurking. In acidified seawater, shells of threatened periwinkles failed to thicken. The ocean's surface water pH now averages at 82 This is where a pH of 7 is considered neutral. A variety of evidence suggests that ocean water has become more acidic since the start of the Industrial Revolution, sinking in pH by about 0.1 unit. If atmospheric carbon dioxide continues to build up at current rates, ocean pH could drop another 0.3 to 0.4 units over the next 100 years. As the acidity increases, sea creatures have greater difficulty producing calcium carbonate Coral reefs, seashells, shields on plankton and even the teeth of sea urchins are built with calcium carbonate. Most research until now on changes in ocean chemistry has focused on individual species. Periwinkle work aims to explore interactions amongst species. The common periwinkle creeps along much of Europe's coastlines. They often fall prey to common shore crabs, which grab them. The frailest periwinkles get crushed and eaten. Rundle and his colleagues grew more than 100 periwinkles in tanks. For half the snails, the team bubbled extra carbon dioxide through the water to mimic an acidic ocean with a pH of 6.45. This is much lower than predicted levels for this century, but Rundle says it provided a starting point for a series of experiments. In tanks with normal seawater and a crab at the bottom, the periwinkle shells thickened by an average of 0.05 millimetres, a substantial fraction of their total thickness. In the acidified tanks, however, shells did not thicken when a crab was present. However, the question therefore is, will lower ocean pH bring crabs a periwinkle feast? Not necessarily, we're told by John Spicer, a collaborator of Rundles, since calcium dynamics could affect crabs as well. Maybe the crabs will have weaker claws, he says. Going coastal, sea cave yields ancient signs of modern behaviour. At pinnacle point on South Africa's southern coast, a cave perched above the sea has provided scientists with evidence of a set of surprisingly complex behaviours practised by Stone Age people about 164,000 years ago, near the evolutionary dawn of Homo sapiens. Our species emerged an estimated 200,000 years ago. A team led by anthropologist Curtis W. Marion of Arizona State University in Tempe found three critical clues in a cave that point to modern human behavior. These are the remains of mussels and other shellfish, 57 pieces of reddish pigment probably used for body coloring or other symbolic acts, and more than 1,800 stone implements, including small, expertly crafted blades. Ancient Africans took up coastal living between 195,000 and 130,000 years ago, when a relatively cold, dry climate inland reduced the number of edible plants and animals. Shellfish, harvested from exposed rocky shores and from tidal pools, offered a stable food source that allowed populations to grow and become less nomadic. Symbolic behavior as a form of social expression could then have flourished. Using modern hunter-gatherer societies as a guide, Marian suspects that coastal living involved a shift from male-dominated big-game hunting to female-led foraging for plants and shellfish. If shellfish were important, it means that women were a key component of that new economy and may have held substantial economic power, he says. The earliest previous evidence for shellfish eating and seaside living in modern humans came from a 125,000-year-old East African site. Pinnacle point artefacts lay in soil dated by a technique that indicates when sediment was last exposed to light. Many shellfish remains came from brown mussels, giant periwinkles and limpets. Double-edged stone blades appeared in a variety of sizes, including no more than 10 millimeters wide. Miniature blades could be attached to the end of a stick to form a spear or be lined up like barbs. Comparably small stone blades characterise much younger African sites, beginning about 70,000 years ago. Marines find at Pitical Point suggest that an ancient reliance on seafood may have been one of the critical factors in the expansion of Homo sapiens out of Africa and along coastal routes to the east.
1: Charles Willock looks at some amazing effects you can achieve by messing with the aperture on your camera.
2: I'm sure you've all noticed, when looking at well-photographed astronomy pictures, the sharp spiky lines apparently emanating from the bright stars. When there is some blur in the image, these effects are less obvious. Not surprisingly, the spikes don't actually exist around stars, well for most stars anyway, just around their images. They and other artefacts, such as the halos around bright stars, arise because of the shape and size of the telescope aperture, or from the shape of various obstructions within the optical path. But I actually want to look at a funny aperture related effect which applies to terrestrial photography. If you are taking pictures of the city at night, you will get spikes around the bright lights in the image, and in general the number of spikes will be equal to the number of blades in the aperture of the lens. There are other artefacts worth knowing about, in particular when parts of the image are out of focus rather than in focus. Aperture shape and size, obstructions within the optical path, lens aberrations and the amount of defocusing all affect the shape and quality of the blur of out of focus highlights. The term bokeh, derived from the Japanese, refers to blurriness or fuzziness of the image and boke aji refers to the nature Pleasing or otherwise, of that blur. Maybe there would be a market for interchangeable aperture types. Mirror lenses, with their central obstruction, have a characteristic donut-shaped blur. This type of blur isn't particularly attractive for many subjects, but it does give us insight into some intriguing experiments. All you need is a camera with a longish focal length and ability to control the exposure. Let us, for example, using the camera in manual mode set the lens wide open at a long focal length and then instead of using the aperture ring to stop down for correct exposure we take a circular piece of black card cut a large triangular hole in it and tape it to the front of the lens then we take an out of focus picture of point sources of light such as distant street lamps or even of the night sky of the city the in focus parts just look normal while the out of focus Lights are triangles of all sorts of colours and sizes. If you really want to be clever, you can calculate the precise size of the hole in the card, knowing how f-stops relate to the diameter of the normally circular aperture and the focal length of the lens. We can take the idea further. If the hole in the card is heart-shaped and we use an electronic flash to light the local area, a picture of a partner against the city skyline will be sharp and all the out-of-focus lights in the distance will appear as little hearts. Oh. Pictures of sparkles on the water are also good subjects. Not surprisingly, rotating the aperture card rotates the blur shape. There are other applications as well, just by changing the shape of the substitute aperture. For example, we can use narrow horizontal slit apertures in which case all of the out-of-focus background will appear as horizontal streaks. So if the in-focus object is a car, then it looks as if it is travelling at speed while standing still, with or without a driver. Flashing lights produce a really cute dancing coloured bokeh on video, and there's absolutely no reason in changing the shape of the aperture to a manual one why one can't use various coloured dyes and transparent pieces of plastic to give colour and shape to the various blur within the image.
1: That was Charles Glick, through the looking glass, with a funny shaped aperture. Who said it was impossible to do photography by radio? You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2scr.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. powered. Most of us still rely on fossil fuels to provide us with energy for our homes and the electrical gadgets we charge up at home. But the future could be quite different. Patrick Ruby investigates how our favourite alcoholic beverage and household and garden waste might hold the answer.
3: Energy is a hot topic for scientists as we try to find alternatives to fossil fuels. Previously on Diffusion we talked about beer batteries, which are a way to provide energy from the wastewater produced when you make beer. Scientists like Dr Cornel Rebe at the Advanced Wastewater Management Centre, University of Queensland Australia, and even our own iconic Foster's Brewery are leading the way with this research. Foster's is developing a beer battery to hold 660 gallons of beer waste which might be able to produce 2 kilowatts of power a day, enough to power a home. But it's also possible to make your own beer battery at home. If you check out Lifehacker on the internet, you'll find an instruction guide on how to put a battery together, based on the design of Abby Groff, a student from Conestoga Valley High School in the US. The battery consists of two electrode chambers that a copper wire runs between. One chamber, containing the anode, is filled with wastewater and sediment and is sealed to make it airtight. The other, containing the cathode, is filled with salt water and is allowed to let air inside. A salt bridge made of agar also connects the two chambers. The secret of this battery is not actually the beer waste itself, it's the bacteria in the beer waste. Bacteria break down the waste, or oxidize it, to produce electrons that are shuttled onto the copper wire in the anode. Electrons are given off at the cathode and combine with oxygen and hydrogen ions to make water. Hydrogen ions? Where do they come from? you might ask. Well, the agar in the salt bridge provide them. When the whole circuit is complete, electricity is given off, which you can measure with a voltmeter. So what can you use your homemade battery for? Some versions of these fuel cells have only given around 0.5 volts of output. But if you diffusion listers can find a use for it, please send us an email at diffusion at 2 The battery doesn't just have to run off beer. Abby Groff's experiments actually used creek sludge instead. The idea of using bacteria to provide battery energy is not new. Microbial fuel cells, or MFCs as they're called, have been around for at least 30 years. Initially, NASA was investigating possible ways of recycling human waste into energy during space flights, and that's what sparked the research. Since then, MFCs have had mixed success. Unfortunately, they tend to be expensive and have low energy yields. But recent discoveries are moving the technology forward. In a report from New Scientist Environment, an MFC won the Massachusetts Institute for Technology and Dow Materials Engineering contest in the US. The contest was aimed at finding new energy sources. The winners designed an MFC for recharging mobile phones. Anaerobic plant-eating bacteria were the ones used for this, but the science is the same as for the beer battery. This time the bacteria break down sugars, starches and cellulose in the plant waste to produce electrons at the anode. The process is enhanced by a catalyst to combine oxygen electrons and hydrogen ions at the cathode. But the researchers are keeping the identity of this catalyst a secret for now. It is thought that this technology would be good for rural areas in the third world where access to electrical grids are limited. The upside, it only costs two US dollars for all components of this charger. The downside, it would take six months for one fuel cell to recharge one phone. Ouch. But the answer to that problem is to stack the fuel cells, and connect multiple units together to reduce charging time. It is also hoped that modifying the catalyst and battery design can make the process up to 100 times more powerful. (music) MFCs are being trialled in other areas of industry too. One of the other finalists from the competition was using microbes to make methane fuel from crop waste and animal dung. Another angle is to use microbes in recycling. An article published in the October 2007 edition of the Chemical Engineer magazine reports research is being done into developing algae that can capture carbon dioxide emissions from power stations. Green Fuel Technologies, a company based in Cambridge in the US, is developing ways to use algal photosynthesis to create biofuels. Algae naturally combines sunlight and carbon dioxide to make carbohydrates and lipids. The algae would recycle carbon dioxide from power stations and then would be used as a supplement biofuel, theoretically reducing the amount of fossil fuels needed in a fuel Carbon dioxide still ends up in our atmospheres, but there's less of it. MFCs could even combine recycling with power production. They could be used in sewage plants so that the plants can be powered by the waste they are processing. Again, the amount of energy an individual MFC produces is small, but by stacking several small MFCs together, larger quantities of electricity can be generated. The waste is broken down and the energy needed to treat the waste is provided by breaking it down. Sounds good, eh? At the same time, it could remove other harmful bacteria from the waste and potentially harmful sulphur and nitrogen compounds from the waste water. Excess electricity generated by breaking down sewage waste could one day be used to power our homes if the process is made more efficient. But scientists such as the developer of the beer battery, Dr. Rebe, believe that this could be a more distant hope. The technology is moving along, but at 0.5 volts per battery, it has got a fair way to go yet. So the next time you throw out your garbage, flush your loo, or pull the plug on that murky dishwater, remember that one day this stuff could power your home.
1: Thank you, Patrick. A bacteria-powered future. I wonder how smelly the future of energy will be. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us for your feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, then send email to diffusion at 2 That's diffusion at 2 scrcom Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Emily Fern, Charles Willock and Patrick Ruby. Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe and Ed Pollitt in the studios of 2SCR Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.